Hey, dear listener. Throughout this podcast, I say Rabbi Noya a couple of times rather than Rabbi Noyo. Rabbi Noyo is how you say the name, not however the hell I pronounced it. I apologize. Rabbi Noyo, I really appreciate your work and appreciate your patience as I mispronounce your name this whole time. So, <laughs> without further ado, please listen to me making a fool of myself. The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be smart enough to stop. When your eyes fly to wealth, it is gone. It grows wings like an eagle and flies heavenward. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama NB, joined today by the wonderful Spencer L. and a new guest, Rabbi Noyo, a.k.a. Sarah. You might hear us call her both throughout uh, this introduction. Sarah, would you tell us a little bit about your religious background, your political tendency, and where folks can find you? Sure. My name is Rabbi Sarah Noyevitz. Everybody calls me Rabbi Noyo, and you can find me on social media as Rabbi Noyo. I am, as my title suggests, a rabbi. I am not affiliated with a movement of Judaism, at least at this point in my life, but I am a progressive liberal rabbi. I am currently serving a congregation that's not affiliated and will be this summer— moving to serve a congregation that's affiliated with the Reconstructing Movement of Judaism. My political leanings are very leftist. My life has been a series of slide to the left. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's, been, it's been great. <laughs> so that's, uh, in a nutshell, that's my political tendency. Dear listener, you probably don't know this about me, but I was raised a fundamentalist Christian and then got kicked out of that and uh, was told of my vaguely Jewish background and spent about six years praying about converting to Judaism and attended a Reconstructionist synagogue for much of that time Mm. um, and a Reformed synagogue. But um, the Reconstructionist synagogue was really um, where I felt called at that time of my life Mm -hmm. and probably would have converted to Judaism if I didn't feel called to be in Christian ministry. So so I am very excited. Excited to have uh, Rabbi Noya here with us to talk about the ways that Christians can learn from our Jewish siblings in the faith to read these texts in a way that is not exploitative and also that challenges a lot of our ways of thinking about it. So, speaking of that text, we're going to go ahead and dive right on in. Genesis 18, 1 through 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he sat at the entrance of his tent in the day's heat. He looked up and suddenly saw three men standing near him. As soon as he saw them, he ran from his tent entrance to greet them and bowed deeply. He said, Sirs, if you would be so kind, don't just pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought so that you may wash your feet and refresh yourselves under the tree. Let me offer you a little bread so that you will feel stronger, and after that you may leave your servant and go on your way, since you have visited your servant. They responded, Fine, do just as you have said. 
So Abraham hurried to Sarah at his tent and said, Hurry, knead three seahs of the finest flour and make some baked goods. Abraham ran to the cattle, took a healthy young calf, and gave it to a young servant who prepared it quickly. Then Abraham took butter, milk, and the calf that had been prepared, put the food in front of them, and stood under the tree near them as they ate. They said to him, Where's your wife Sarah? And he said, Right here in the tent. Then one of the men said, I will definitely return to you about this time next year. Then your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were both very old. Sarah was no longer menstruating. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, I'm no longer able to have children, and my husband's old. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Me give birth? At my age? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? When I return to you about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Sarah lied and said, I didn't laugh, because she was frightened. But he said, No, you laughed. Now, long-time listener, you will remember that I almost always say, this is a weird little story. And this is an odd story here that seems to be happening, that, that there is a lot that seems to be assumed that is not said explicitly. This is one of those stories that we have to read a lot into the text to try and figure out what's going on here. And one of the first things that we, we should remember when we're looking at this text is the Oaks of Mamre, right? If you remember what Jeff was talking about in an episode, I think in episode 11, where they are talking about the fact that the Oaks of Mamre are this sort of Eden-like place where God goes into Eden and is walking through the Garden of Eden and appears as on the wind. Well, here, it's the day's heat, the same sort of wind concept. So here you see this comparison between the oaks of Mamre and Eden, as if this promise is sort of fulfilling this original command that God had given to Adam and Eve to go out and be fruitful. God has now come to this old man and this old woman who are far past the age to be fruitful, and yet God here says, you are going to be fruitful. God comes down checking on his buddy Abraham after his surgery, mm-hmm. <laughs> his recovery. That's that's supported by Jewish thought. Like we are meant to emulate this this particular divine behavior of visiting the sick or visiting people in hospitals because God did that for mm-hmm. Abraham. Mm-hmm. The whole story is lots of what are our obligations towards each other a little bit, um, especially once the visitors show up. The thing that I couldn't stop thinking about is that he has the surgery, and within three months, he needs to be conceiving his child. (laughs) And so, how long is the recovery time on a circumcision? I don't know, but (laughs) that seems real fast to me. I mean, he, he jumped up and started running around as soon as he saw people around him. That's true. I I don't know the medical science. I'm not a doctor. But at this point, it doesn't seem like he should be up running around. You know, God came to visit him in recovery. So, like, shouldn't he be recovering? Nope. As soon as he sees people, he's up and at them. He's like, fellas, come here. Let me get you some bread. Let me give you some water. Like, let me take care of you a little bit. But he goes out of his way to go above and beyond just doing what he says. Which is not what we would expect for somebody who just had this kind of surgery. I mean, mm-hmm. I, yeah. <laughs> I, for for adults who are circumcised, 
who had not previously been circumcised and are converting to Judaism, it's about a month (laughs) of recovery time. (laughs) Only a month surprises me. (laughs) But like, I mean, this is like, this is two verses away from his circumcision in the text. So was it a month? Was it two months? Was it the very next day? Either way, probably was a little soon to be running around and, you know, lifting jugs of water for people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, one one quote that I read as I was reading commentaries on this was uh, from Hugh Nibley. He said, he seemed to be generous to the point of lacking common sense, mm-hmm. which, yeah, he's a hundred-year-old man. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a hundred-year-old man even get up that well, let alone run. Let alone right mm. after major surgery. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but he's not Grandpa Joe getting the golden ticket in Willy Wonka. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have a miraculous recovery here. There's no conversation about that. He just sees these strangers and accommodates them, right? And so it, it is illustrating a wildly different sort of ethic, right? That he is in the middle of the surgery and yet he still sees these guests and goes up to take care of these things. Sorry, to take care of these people, right? And part of the reason that I'm saying that this text has a lot going on just underneath the surface is that it is not obvious to me from verse 1 that Abraham knows that one of these people are God, right? That the Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre while he sat in the entrance of his tent in the day's heat. From Abraham's perspective, he looks up and he sees three men standing near him. So, like, does he know that that's God? Or are these just three people that seem to be going there? And I like both interpretations, right? On the one hand, he sees God appear before him as someone who is embodied, right? As someone who can empathize with the fact that he is experiencing pain in this moment. On the other hand, this is a story about someone who is just doing hospitality as it's meant to be done. In the ancient Near East, there are all these codes around hospitality that you see these strangers and you're supposed to take care of them. You're supposed to bring them in, which is why the ethics of so many other cultures are diametrically opposed to this, right? Even today, if you go to the Middle East, most places, you're going to be warmly welcomed. That was one of the strange phenomenon of when the United States was sending sending troops over to the Middle East to go and do an imperialism, right? So often we end up with these books like uh, Two Cups of Tea, right, which are talking about the fact that the people who were actually in that region were constantly striving for peace because they wanted to be hospitable even to the people who were coming in to conquer them. And that stands in stark contrast (laughs) to the American way of being. (laughs) Just to talk a bit about, I guess, the size, the the measure of this hospitality. So Abraham goes to Sarah, he says, need three seahs, or seahs, however you pronounce that. As looking to that, that's 93 cups of flour. So she's making a feast. And he's Mm -hmm. he's cooking Mm -hmm. a whole calf. And growing up, my family, we'd buy a a 4-H calf once a year or so. And that's, for my, my large family growing up, that was about it, six months worth of meat. So they're making a huge mm. feast. Yeah. Uh, just that, that level of hospitality to like see, I guess if you go to the interpretation, it's three people, three random strangers just out on the road. Abraham's like, hey, come in, we'll feed you. 
And yet this feels quintessentially Jewish to me. <laughs> I, I certainly experienced the stereotype of, of the Jewish grandmother uh, every time that I went to, <laughs> to a synagogue, uh, to one of the uh, potlucks at our synagogue, <laughs> where the noodle kugel was abounding and amazing and delicious. And <laughs> someone was always heaping more of it onto your plate, right? That Abraham is going all out in this feast, that he's offering six months worth of cow. You know, they're preparing like heaps of food. What's also interesting here is, is this a kosher meal? (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering if somebody was going to ask that. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, literally on its face, no, it's it's meat from a calf and there's milk. There's different takes on this. Um, Some ancients argued that because we had not received Torah yet, and therefore the laws of Kashrut had not been given yet, that he was doing nothing wrong. But other scholars assert that Abraham kept all of the laws of Torah before Torah was ever given down. Well, some people will eat dairy immediately before meat without waiting in between, but not the other way around. There are different amounts of time and different, I don't usually like to talk about levels of strictness because that's that's not exactly accurate to talk about any of this, but like levels of strictness in terms of keeping kosher. So some people will eat dairy and then immediately eat meat. Other people will wait an hour. Other people will wait half an hour, three hours, six hours, you know, one before the other. Um, so it's possible that they were served the dairy first and then the meat, and there was no problem. <laughs> uh, he took curd and milk, etc. This teaches that he fed them both milky and meaty dishes. When God was ready to give Torah to the Israelites, the angels are reported as having said to God, you have covered the heavens with your glory. This is perceived as the angels demanding that Torah remain in the celestial regions of the universe. And God replied to them, In my Torah, it is written that milky and meaty dishes not be consumed in the same meal. That's from Exodus 23, 19. Yet, when you descended to earth, you partook of such a mixture at Abraham's table. Oh. The inference... (laughs) Things getting spicy in here, God. (laughs) The inference is clear. The laws of Torah do not apply to you. As soon as the angels heard this, they withdrew their objections to Torah being given to people on earth. Mm. Um, there's more, but that's uh, <laughs> that's the fun part. <laughs> well, and, and I think that one of the things that particularly Christians just fundamentally misunderstand about Judaism is that Torah is not like, it's not a weighty thing, right? That Torah is an intimacy with God. It's a way of maintaining the special relationship. And, you know, one of the things that I loved most about um, Judaism while I was exploring it was when I tried to keep kosher, it was really hard, Mm -hmm. but it reminded me at every meal what I was supposed to be doing, right? While I was doing this, I was in Texas. There was no way <laughs> to, to avoid pork. There's a lot of, of meat. None of it's kosher. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, um, and so it was it was really hard to abide by that. And every time I was reminded, I'm doing this because I'm trying to be faithful, because I'm trying to develop this intimacy with God. And it was just a beautiful reminder there. And I love that the angels are getting called out for not doing that. <laughs> Yeah. In defense of the angels, perhaps Abraham pulled another bait and switch. You know, he said he was going to bring out a little water, a little bread. This event lasted six days. (laughs) Perhaps that happened. And, you know, 
there was the butter and the milk on the first day, mm-hmm. the calf on the second day. Like it, 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 it became a rolling party, and Abraham had three new best friends. Yeah. <laughs> also, also, like he goes out to have that calf slaughtered and prepared by one of his laborers, like right at that moment. So it's not going to be ready to eat in ten minutes. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I mean, this like takes you, time. You have to like you have to let all the blood drain out because. Mm-hmm. We like Sarah you know, had to mix ninety three cups of flour. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but like I mean, if we're arguing that it had to be kosher because he's keeping the laws, then also he would have kept the law of not consuming blood. So you have to let all the blood drain out. So like this animal was you know hung up in a way that all the blood could be drained. That takes hours. So by the time that is ready to be cooked and then eventually eaten, you have digested every bit of dairy already. While we're talking about the laws of kosher, we should also talk about the way that the cattle was prepared, right? That in our modern American context, when we talk about our food systems, there is no way that they are ethical, right? That the amount of meat that we are consuming is destroying the Amazon and all of these sort of things. But just the way that the the actual animals are treated, I desperately do not ever want to watch one of the videos of a factory farm because as soon as I do, I will never be able to eat meat again. And I like meat. Um, <laughs> I, I wish that I didn't, but I, I do. And I just know that as soon as I am actually forced to face that, I am going to stop eating meat entirely. And I'm running away from my conscience in that. My kid is much more vegetarian than I am because he's a better person than I am. But um, the laws of kosher are specifying an ethical way to slaughter an animal that doesn't require it to suffer in the same way that our factory farms do today. Mm. Well, I think at the time that the laws of kosher slaughtering were established, it was perhaps a more humane way of slaughtering animals than maybe what was going on in societies around them. I do not think that kosher slaughtering is the most ethical way to slaughter animals that we have Mm. available to us today. But the laws of Judaism have since been written down and published, and so they've kind of stopped changing. Um, (laughs) So people who use the structure of Jewish law continue to use the structure as it has existed for many generations now. And people who use different kinds of structure, for example, ethical eating as a structure in place of the laws as written in Jewish texts, would say, rather than kosher slaughter, I want to make sure that I am only eating animals that um, have been raised in a you know free range, and the workers who work on these farms are paid living wages, and that when if I if I choose to eat meat, that these animals are uh, that their lives are taken in a way that is the most humane way that we know how, um, and kosher slaughtering would not cut it, pun intended. <laughs> and there's and there's other ways to like keep like modern versions of kashrut that like it's not about mixing milk and meat but it's about ethically sourced resources it's about um if the animals were raised in humane ways that you know buying local like that this has become for a lot of progressive jews the new kosher 
Mm, that is absolutely a great pushback on <laughs> on that. And as you were saying that, I was even thinking about the ways that like I fall into this trap of I just exotified Judaism, right, in a way where I elevated <laughs> these kosher laws as greater than my own and in that way made them foreign and, you know, something to be glorified. So thank you for that. I appreciate I appreciate that pushback and and that correction that helps me reorient that. Um you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> and I am very open to being challenged on my ethics of fooding, uh, uh, of fooding, <laughs> of eating. Well, I'll challenge you on those food <laughs> ethics. I think the only ethical meat is the one you raise yourself. Man. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that's my hot take. I, I will say with the 4-H caps, there, there is something different, something nice about being able to call up the person that raised the cow you're eating. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, this goes back to the fact that there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? That like the systems that are set up to mass produce enough meat so that everybody has a terrible slab of meat on their uh, McDonald's Happy Meal, right? That is just treated terribly and all these sort of things. That Those systems are set up so that we both become addicted to the chemicals that they add to all of that meat, but also that we are stuck in this cycle where if we want to have meat that is that affordable, we have to participate in the in this process. A friend of mine is a farmer and we were going to go in on half a cow with another set of friends and it was $1,300 for half a cow. Now, that would feed the, our f- small families for probably a year, but $1,300 is a lot of money to put down <laughs> on an ethically sourced cow, right? And most of us just don't have the money to be able to make those ethical decisions. And so until we're able to replace the system entirely with a system where we have collectively run farms, where the animals are treated with dignity and respect and all of those things, we're stuck in a system that doesn't allow us to escape from that sort of unethical eating. Now, don't hear that and say, well, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, so we can't make any better decisions. But I also think that we shouldn't condemn our comrades who have less money than us to make those ethical decisions as somehow being less ethical Mm -hmm. because of how much money is in their wallet. We can't condemn others. We can just try, if we hold those values, to live up to a standard that abides with our values. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Amen. <laughs> I also think it's not just about um, about finances, because that that often comes, uh, you know, to the forefront of these conversations. That like I can't afford to be making the decisions I want to make. Yeah. But it's also there's there's also an emotional factor at play that people don't want to get to know a cute little animal and then have to kill it. Yes. People don't want that. People don't people people want to pay somebody else to do that dirty work so that they don't have to um, process the emotions that come with that. And the problem is that if so many people are paying other people to do that because they literally don't want to look at it being done, Mm -hmm. then when you look away, a lot of other stuff can happen. Um, And that's where we end up snowballing into the, the capitalistic system of mass producing meat and nobody's looking except for those people with the hidden cameras going into these factories making these documentaries and then freaking everybody else out um, (laughs) because people literally don't want to look yeah that's how we got into this mess in the first place absolutely but that's been going on forever that's the whole upton sinclair's the jungle like and that book wasn't even about like the food or animal conditions. That was supposed to be about the labor conditions mm-hmm. and the people. Mm-hmm. And it turned people's stomachs, yeah. not 
And and that's what a lot of people see when they see those kind of videos. Like it it doesn't touch their heart, it turns their stomach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder what would happen if, you know, we take lessons from I mean, this is this is one of those tropes that I that I kind of grew up with seeing about indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Um and sort of having a ritual around and Judaism has rituals, but not not necessarily the same as the ones that I grew up learning about um, the indigenous ritual of like thanking the animal and also of using every part of an animal. Mm. Um, and I don't know if there are particular indigenous nations that I mean, there's so many and they're all so different. So like and I grew up with like Indian in the cupboard. <laughs> so like not the not the best like education about indigenous uh, nations of Turtle Island, but like, you know, that scene stuck with me of the now alive toy Indian um, having shot this creature and thanking them for their sacrifice so that he could then eat the animal and use the fur and use all the all the parts of the animals in different ways. And I wonder what that would do to us if we could learn from those kinds of rituals, if it would make it possible for us to not have to trade our chickens with the chickens in the village next door, in the commune next door, because we would have a relationship with our chickens mm. that would allow us to thank the chickens for allowing us to continue to live, that like that that is part of our intimate relationship with the chickens that we raised from eggs. And that would make it easier for us to stomach. It's not just like, oh my God, this is a living creature that I had no relationship with and it died and I don't know how. And now I'm like sick to my stomach about it and can't finish this delicious curry. It's, I raised this lamb and I thanked this lamb and that relationship is like really sacred to me. And now I feel like eating this curry is an intimate act. It is part of the relationship. And now the lamb and I are connected in a way that we weren't before. Like, what would that do to our psyches if we adopted these kinds of rituals that the colonizers tried to erase and Mm. in many ways still are continuing to do so? Well, and that concept that you just elucidated, right, is building a relationship with the animal rather than an ownership of the animal, right? Like, that concept that's so hard for me is I have ownership of my dog, right? My dog is here laying beside me and she's looking absolutely lovely, but ultimately I'm in an ownership relationship with her, right? Where I have a power that she does not have in our relationship relationship to, you know, to make her come into the room with me and sit down here so that she doesn't get into a fight with my other dog, right? Like, <laughs> there's, there are, there are different kinds of relationships that come from a culture of imperialism, that come from a culture of, I'm taking what's mine and whatnot, and that is stands in stark contrast to this culture that Abraham is representing here in the ancient Near East, where instead of saying, this is all mine, right, he is being extremely generous with these strangers who are here with them. And it stands in stark contrast to the story that we're about to hear in the next couple of chapters with the story of Sodom. Yeah, the story of Sodom that immediately follows this is a good contrast that the people of Sodom did not show this hospitality. Mm -hmm. And the sin of Sodom comes up a whole lot as an argument against homosexuality, argument against who knows whatever. But throughout the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel, we read there, and 
in some places in Hebrews as well, in the New Testament, it's referenced, it talks about the sin of Sodom, and it's talking about this lack of hospitality, this lack of uh, brotherly love, I guess you could say, lack of kindness towards your fellow man. And that's brought up like in Ezekiel as, hey, you're not doing this right thing. You're going to be destroyed like Sodom Mm -hmm. for not loving your fellow man, for not taking in the stranger. Mm -hmm. And I was reading this and I really felt called out by this because in my, my congregation, there's been a few families that moved in from other countries. They're still learning English. And I, I felt bad as I read this thinking like, have I shown enough hospitality to these people? Mm. Have I opened up my home? Have I, given them a feast and I haven't done that yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm, mm. I'm still lacking before God. Yeah. yeah you need three sayas worth. <laughs> that's a, that's if a you hell haven't of a lot fed of bread. them that much. If you haven't fed them that much flour. <laughs> well, it's, well, it's Canadian flour. So the, the conversion rates are different. <laughs> we have to remember in the Bible, the sin of Sodom is not being hospitable to strangers, right? And according to the text, we read Ezekiel 1649, that she and her daughters were proud, had plenty to eat and enjoyed peace and prosperity, but she didn't help the poor and the needy. That's what the text says. And instead, because this becomes read in a Romanized text in the Roman culture, Hospitality was not the same deal. Hospitality was something that those sissies, the Greeks, did, but in Rome was not as important of a feature. Hospitality was only for people like me, right? Hospitality was only for people who weren't barbarians, like all those lesser peoples that we had conquered, right? And so hospitality had to be converted to something else, and the sin of Sodom became something that signified that other culture, that other culture that cared a lot about hospitality. And so the sin of Sodom went from being about not being about hospitality, but instead became about homosexuality because that's what the Greeks did. The Greeks had homosexuality in their culture, so therefore sodomy has to do with that Greek culture instead. Now, I am wildly simplifying a long trajectory of tearing apart the Bible and misusing it in lots of different ways. We could talk about the fact that there was a pope who gave one of his bishops a special disposition to practice sodomy on really hot days because the island that he lived on was apparently so hot that he had to practice sodomy and able to get past it, right? So, like, <laughs> sodomy... That makes it, no sense, but okay. <laughs> no sense at all. Uh, my source is No Such Thing as a Fish. Highly recommend that podcast. But uh, there are all of these strange cultural norms that come to inform our reading of the Bible so often, when if we go back to the text and actually understand it in its context, we come away with an entirely different story. And speaking of coming away with an entirely different story, we need to come back to this text and understand it in its context to say these three people who appear in this story are not the Christian Trinity. (laughs) That is not a faithful reading of this very Jewish text that in Judaism there is no concept of the Trinity. In the ancient Near East, the Trinity is not a thing. Now, we can say as Christians that we believe that the Trinity has always existed, and so the Trinity might show up in all these different ways, but we should not be reading this text and inserting our theological beliefs into a context that is entirely different. And so, instead, let's read this story, and let's see the fact that Abraham, as a character, doesn't seem to know that these people are God. How do you all think that that changes the story here? To me, that really makes the 
magnitude of this hospitality so much bigger. Because I, I think how often do I look out my door and I see three random people and think, hey, come in, have a feast. Mm. It just goes to show like how huge this hospitality from Abraham was. For me, it like that's the interpretation that I took away from it to begin with, that like Abraham doesn't know that any of these people are God. And I I think that Abraham knew God was already with him, you know, mm. in the woo of it. So I I don't think he even had any sort of little like inkling that any of these guys were God. So this is how Abraham understands now to treat other people. And like, that's just how people should be. Like, that makes sense to me. This is good. Like, like it shouldn't be like, oh, this is magnanimous. This should be like, this is normal. Mm. This is what you should expect when you're a stranger in a strange land. Like, mm. yeah. One of the commentaries on this on this verse says that if they were so close to Abraham that he could see who they were, then he wouldn't have been able to run to them. And the text mm. says that he ran to greet them. If they were close enough, then there's no distance over which to run. So they were clearly far enough away that he must not have known who they were. So, like, all the more so, to your point, that this is how you should greet people normally, whether <laughs> you know that they are angels or not, wh whether they could be enemies or not. This is just what you do. If someone's like an enemy and they're coming up on you and you treat them like this, are, like there's a chance they won't be your enemy mm. after you treat them like this. This is just utter grace like mm. in, in action for how how one treats someone else so well and and this stands in such stark contrast to the way that our culture treats strangers right like throughout the old and new testament there are something like 2000 verses that tell you how to take care of the poor right that tell you to stand in solidarity with people who have nothing right and remember dear listener the poor is those of us who work and still don't end up having enough most of the time right that most of us are two paychecks away from experiencing homelessness. All of us are poor. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably poor and fall into that definition, right? And 2,000 verses talk about how to care for people who do not have enough. 400 of those verses talk about caring for the stranger. And yet still, Christians are the people, supposedly, who are standing up and chanting, build the wall, and voting for policies that take away benefits from themselves and other people just because they're doing so out of spite, right? In what crazy contrast does that stand to this story? Now, I'm not saying that there are people who are just friendlier than other people. Like, that's that's not a racial category. There are grumpy people in every people group. There are happy people in every people group. But cultures that inundate people in this way of living that are more hospitable, that has to be closer <laughs> to what we are called to do in God, right? And coming from a Christian perspective, right, we have Matthew 25, where Jesus gathers all the people together and separates people into the sheep and the goats, the people that uh, that followed God and the people who thought they were following God, but actually didn't do anything, right? He says to the sheep, you saw me when I was hungry, when I was naked, when I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink, you gave me clothes, you gave me food, and so you actually followed what I was saying. 
And you people, you claimed to do these things, and yet you didn't do them, right? You claimed that you loved me, but then I showed up as the poor person who was thirsty. I showed up as the poor person who had no clothes. I showed up as the poor person who was hungry, and you didn't show up for me, right? You didn't show me that you loved me. You weren't following what I said to do. And so, you know, even though you claimed to be my followers, you weren't actually doing it. <laughs> and so that stands in stark contrast. And Rabbi Noya, when we were first starting the podcast, you were talking about the same way that sort of lesson comes out um, in Judaism. Yeah, that there's this idea that there are ways that we should emulate godliness and one of the elements on this list is to visit the sick, Bikur Cholim. And the Talmud gives us a citation from this text that God did Bikur Cholim, visited the sick when God visited Abraham after his surgery. There's other things on the list that we should bury our dead. And we know that God did this because God buried Moses. Um, all sorts of cool examples of ways that God did things for people and that we should be like God in those ways. Hey there, listener. This is Micah for the Future, here to say that we had such a wonderful conversation that we did not want to try and cut out anything from this uh, from this dialogue that we had going on. And so we split it into two episodes. Once again, my favorite thing to do. And so I hope that you will come back next week to continue this conversation with Al Spencer and Rabbi Noyo. They were just incredible guests and had so many wonderful things to say. So I look forward to having you again next week when we will get back to normal. Real quick before we go, we want to give a big shout out to all the patrons who have come on since the last time we did a thank you. We are so appreciative to you, Carter M., Darth2514, Idiot Zombie, and Merlis Avery, as well as Renee and Keaton. Y'all are just amazing and allow us to pay our wonderful editors. Uh, Yes, I said editors, because we're adding editors to the program because of your generosity and because you've come alongside to make this into something uh, that is much bigger than any one of us. So thank you, thank you, thank you, patrons. And thank you to everyone who is sharing and reviewing this on all of the platforms. Uh, that is how we're going to get the word out of here. We're not paying for any ads. We're not really building ads into our program because... Uh, if you haven't picked up on it, I'm not exactly a capitalist. So <laughs> so this word of mouth show is only growing because of the amazing stuff that this community is bringing into it. And I am so appreciative for everyone who comes on board to be a part of this community. Whether you can contribute as a comrade, a comrader, or a comradest, uh, or if you are just an active member of our Discord, we so appreciate you. Now, past Micah, take it away. Thank you, Future Micah, and of course you, our wonderful listener. Together we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go, my friends, and look out at the stranger. Assume they are God, and share the hospitality that all people deserve. Shalom. Shalom.